It is amazing to think that the Lord who created all things established this earth for a story, a history of redemption. That's why this earth exists, so that a story could be written on this earth. Uh, beginning with a perfect creation and then a fall, and then a beginning process of redemption and Abraham and the people of Israel and the Son of God himself coming, living perfectly, dying for sinners, rising again, and then the commission being given and the gospel spreading around the world until all the peoples are penetrated and the elect are gathered in, and then the Lord of glory returns and all evil is banished to outer darkness. There's a new heaven and a new earth, and we really will tell the story for the rest of eternity. We will marvel at the increasing insight into the history of redemption and why this world was created in the first place. It's an amazing thing to think that human beings, not angels, they never were part of the fall and redemption. They didn't get died for. Human beings were what this thing was all about. Getting human beings into a frame of mind and heart with a knowledge and a heart that could give glory to God forever and ever for the story and the glory of God manifest in the story. I mean, if that ever gets a hold of you, that you are at the center of this thing, is uh, it'll cut you loose to do what these messages are designed to do. Well, as you come to the end of the epistles, you get a lot of practical words. And uh, we're in the middle of some of those practical words here. In chapter 4 of Colossians, and uh, why don't we go ahead and read, mm, let's just take verses 5 and 6 and save a little time. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, that's what we talked about this morning. And I think the rest of the two verses make more of that, spell more of that out. Making the most of the opportunity, some of the old versions, redeeming the time, purchasing the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Now, there are five parts here, and I, I mentioned them this morning. Uh, what does it mean to walk in wisdom? Secondly, what does it mean to make the most of the opportunity. Third, how do you let your speech be with grace or in grace? Fourth, what does it mean to be seasoned with salt? And fifth, um, how do you know how to answer everyone? Ask you, why are they asking you anyway? What are they asking you? How did it come about that they felt like asking you anything? Let's just take those one at a time in the minutes that we have here, and then we're going to close by by having a commissioning tonight. Then you can linger and talk to one another, or if you don't have any kids to go home and put to bed, you might go out and have ice cream or pizza or something. Who knows what God might do tonight to knit the family together. So, number one this morning on uh, wisdom. Number two tonight, Make the most of the opportunity. Literally, purchase. The word cursed four times in the New Testament. Purchase 
the kairos, the, the opportunity, the time. I think the first thing to say about that is that there are times that are different from other times. There are seasons, there are opportunities that are different. I don't think it would say purchase it, redeem it, take it, if there weren't. Sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not. And so the first thing is the simple thing. In our relationships with people, there are the Greek word, there are kairoi. It's different from the, the time that goes like this. It's, it's the time that's these seasons, these moments, these unusual opportunities. And they come from time to time in our lives and in our relationships. And we need to watch for them and we need to buy them when they come. Purchase them. They are valuable. That's probably why he uses the word purchase, buy. They're valuable. They come, they're going to disappear. They'll never be there again. They're gone like a diamond. They're one of a kind. And you you either buy them or you lose them. Right? You buy them or you lose them. And so he says, be aware of those. Buy them. Buy them. It might be, here's some examples. It might be an unusual time alone in a car with somebody. You'd never thought you'd get a chance to have a ten-minute ride with them alone. No interruptions. Nobody in the office to butt in. And you suddenly say, good night, this is a kairos. (laughs) This is an opportunity. Are you going to buy it or are you going to squander it? Another what might be, like we heard this morning from Michael O'Fallon, an unusual crisis or openness comes and you're you're tuning in to people and you sense something's funny today, something's wrong today, something is up in this life here. Are you going to buy that or are you going to lose it? Another example might be an unusual comment made over lunch, some comment about some TV evangelist or some church or um, I just read an article in the insert in the Tribune, the little USA thing that said uh, campuses coming alive to religion. It's an article about the Internet. I thought it was going to be about the revivals. It's about it's about looking for God on the Internet. Big Muslim homepage right there. And then a lot of others illustrate. So somebody makes a comment about religion on the Internet and boom, this is a kairos. What are you going to do with it? What will wisdom call for? Don't make this mistake. I think many of us make this mistake. We think, uh, oh, there are these special kairoi, that's the plural kairos, these special opportunities, and I'll just wait for them. I'll just wait. And you wait and you wait and you pretty soon you never recognize them. You, you don't know whether they're there or not. Paul, he went, we're reading Acts now as a family, he went from city to city and the kairos was, there's a synagogue and it's the Sabbath. That's it. You walk in there and it's Saturday morning and the Jews are gathered and I'm a Jew and I know the Messiah. They don't. They never heard of Jesus Christ. And so there's my opportunity. And he goes in there. And the reason I point this out is because he gets run out a lot. They always divide. A few get convinced and most of them say blasphemous things and put him out. Now, you if you're in a certain frame of mind, you might say, uh, the last three cities I went to, say Philippi and 
and uh, Thessalonica and Berea, it was not good in the synagogues. So you come to the next city, you say, it's obviously not a kairos to go to the synagogue. Well, that's just not the conclusion he drew. He walked right into the face of the lion over and over again. So don't don't think that these opportunities are easy. Okay? They're just there and they're worth buying up. And they may not produce any fruit at all. You're to buy them and use them. God's business is to bear fruit. Yours is to plant seed. A second observation about this purchase. The word is used, for example, in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the purchase of the law, having become a curse for us. That word redeemed is the same word. Bought. Bought us from the curse of the law. From which I conclude this, to, to redeem the time or to buy up the opportunity is to take whatever painful steps are necessary to gain what we're after. I just point out the sacrifice with the purchase. When you buy anything, you lose something, namely money. Christ lost his life. Do not think that when the moment comes, it will cost you nothing. It will cost you something. The first thing it costs you is overcoming fear. Get an egg on your face or saying something stupid or having somebody think you're weird or ruining a relationship. I mean, there's a biggie. You know, you've been cultivating this relationship for a month, two months, a year, two years, three years, and you're just so afraid if I say something flat out, it'll just make things so awkward for the rest of our life together. That's what that's a big obstacle between me and one of my neighbors that I'm praying hard about and trying to talk to. Maybe I'll tell you more about how that has gone in in a little bit. It'll cost you something. And I think God wants us to take those risks. Here's the third observation. The parallel to this text is in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Let me read it to you because it adds a phrase that sheds light on it. Paul says in Ephesians, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise. So here's his wisdom again, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most or purchasing the opportunity because the days are evil. Now, there's a reason given that's really interesting. Purchase the opportunity that comes because the days are evil. Now, what does that mean? Why is that a reason? Here's the way I think that works in our minds. The days are evil means the drift of this age. The God of this age is the devil. And the mood of this age is unbelief. And the whole stream and current of the river of this age is away from heaven towards destruction. That's the way the river's flowing. It's flowing that way. And everybody who's not swimming... Toward heaven, by faith, is drifting the other way. So if you are in that stream where we all are, living and relating to people in that stream, you need to know everybody and every force is pulling away from heaven. And therefore, you can't coast and expect to lead people to heaven. you got to buy. you got to buy. you got to intervene. I think that's the idea here. By the moment, by the time, because the days are evil. You got the power of darkness and the power of hell and the power of the devil is trying to keep you away from them and them away from you and your word shut and you all mixed up and your family messed up so that you can't have any freedom to do anything because you think my family's so messed up that I can't even say a word at home, let alone in the office that doesn't result in trouble. 
I mean, Satan's doing everything he can to keep your mouth shut and to keep you separated from unbelievers. There's all kinds of things. Just bang, come into your life as soon as you set on a course to talk to somebody. And so the days are evil, a lot of evil. And you must buy, you must sacrifice, you must intrude yourself in there. Like Randy, standing right here, one of the last things he said was, the joy, catch that note at the end when Mike was done, the joy of seeing another person come to exult in the supremacy of God is worth any sacrifice that you might make. Here's, let's just give some examples from the Bible of people who bought opportunities. Um, well, first, from one from Decision Magazine. That's not the Bible, but I just read it yesterday, and I, I couldn't find it. I must have tossed it after I read it, but I'll tell it to you from my head. Some of you may have read it, and you can look at near the back. There's a little, little page about the wrong, it's called the wrong address or something like that. So it was an, a, um, an evangelistic team visitation that goes out at night, two guys, and uh, this woman wanted them to visit her boyfriend or something, and they gave him address 19A in a trailer park somewhere. So they go, they can't even find a trailer park. And so they ask at a gas station or something, where, where is this? And they say, oh, down here and take a ride. And they go and they find a trailer park and they walk up and down, no 19. So they just pick a door, knock, knock, knock. And they say, where's 19A? They say, there's no 19A in this trailer park. They say, oh. So they give up, start walking, and little voice, however you want to interpret this, says, why don't you just talk to him? He was nice. So I turn around and go to the door. Knock, knock. We're just out visiting and talking to people about the Lord. Uh, could we come in and share with you our faith? Sure. They come in. And before they know it, this man is in such turmoil about some things in his life. He's a believer, a very backslidden one. They help him get right with God. He's down on his knees He has and getting right with God. He has a 95-year-old mother who's not a believer. Lives with him in the trailer. Just sitting there watching this guy on his knees and these people sharing the gospel. And uh, she receives Christ. Now, that's the story in Decision Magazine. So here's a little crisis moment. Couldn't find 19A. You're walking away from the door. You could go home, watch the rest of whatever games on TV or whatever, you know. Or you could buy a moment. Buy it. Buy it. Just buy it. And see what God might do. That'd be, that's a great example of how God uses a little extra investment in the hour. Here's a, here's some biblical examples. Uh, Paul and Silas we mentioned this morning in uh, prison. I just love that example because I can't believe Luke explicitly says their feet were in stocks. It was midnight, about midnight. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. You think that was an accident? You think they said, oh, my, my, they're listening to us. I don't think so. I think they're sitting there and they're saying, well, this might be it. We may be killed tomorrow morning, or this jailer might just run us through. We have no idea. So what's the best way to go out? You know? Witness. How are we going to witness? Well, let's sing. Isn't that great? Let's just sing. Midnight. I mean, that's a good way to get run through. Sore. But evidently they, they 
got that from the Lord and, and he shook the prison. They bought the moment, the midnight moment. They bought it not with a sermon, but with a hymn. And uh, a jailer was converted and his family. Another example is Jesus and the woman at the well. Read a little bit. Just see, hear this. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city. And the Samaritan woman therefore said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, asked for me, from me a drink, since I'm a Samaritan and a woman? Answer, I'm buying the time. I've got a moment here. My disciples are gone. I'm thirsty. You're a woman without the gospel. You're right there. I'm right here. I buy it. I buy it. Give me a drink. And she, he knows what's coming. You don't talk to women. You don't talk to Samaritans. I'm going to do both. Break all the rules. Get a conversation going. And uh, she's saved. And a lot of other people in her train when she goes off to witness. Here's another example. Paul in Jerusalem. You remember when he went into the temple and they got all upset near the end of his life. They thought he was desecrating the temple and the mob happens and the soldiers come down and they're dragging him away and ready to put him in jail. And they're on the steps, <laughs> on the steps, on the way into the jail. And he says, excuse me, <laughs> to the centurion, excuse me. And he says, oh, you know Greek? He says, yeah, I know Greek. And I'm a Roman citizen too. Can I talk to this crowd, this mob? And he said, whoa. Sure. And he preaches a sermon. I mean, they just beat him. He's got this huge crowd, captive audience. He is the center of attention. And he says, excuse me, can I preach here? What a man. What a man. The rest of us, we'd be saying, Lord, is this what I get for being faithful? No. He says, give me another chance, Lord. Give me another chance. Right here on the steps. I got bodyguards all around me. Mm, what a man. And here's here's an application verse, Luke 21, 12. Anytime you get arrested is a kairos. Okay? This, this is what it says. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my sake. It will turn out for a testimony. So every time something terrible happens to you and you are where you didn't want to be, buy it. Remember that story I told years ago about the stalled vehicle on the side of the road in the middle of Kentucky, 20 miles from any city, Sunday morning, and a water heater blown. I didn't know what it was. I mean, a water pump. And... uh I was there, and so humiliating, trying to wave down cars. I won't stop, and you feel like an absolute idiot. Excuse me, we're in trouble, and you don't know what to do. And Abraham, what was he then? Eight, nine, ten, said, maybe we should pray. Oh, yeah, good idea. So we go down, go around behind the U-Haul, and he and I bow our heads. Lord God, please help somebody stop and help us. Look up, two cars are stopped, and one of them is a mechanic who said, I'll go into town and, and bring my tools out and fix it for you. You talk about a faith-building event for a nine-year-old boy and a whatever I was then, 45 or something. Boy. Every time you wind up in a place you didn't plan to be, buy it. Buy it. Don't murmur. 
Don't murmur by it. Okay. That's one of four. How are we doing? We're doing all right. That's the longest one. Number three, Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be with grace. Let your word always be in grace. That's difficult to know exactly how to take the little phrase in grace. Because it might mean let it rest in grace so that you are drawing from grace as you speak words. Or it might mean let your words be so saturated with grace that they are offering grace. And and there's no reason, I suppose, to think that it couldn't be both, since both we know from elsewhere are certainly true. This text came to my mind, Matthew 10, 8. Freely you have received, that is graciously, you have received, freely give. Freely you receive, freely give. In other words, as you relate to people at work, your whole orientation should be, all I have I got by grace. All my forgiveness is by grace. All my hope in eternal life is by grace. All my financial situation is by grace. All my health is by grace. All my home is by grace. All my mental capacities are by grace. All my emotional wherewithal is by grace. I have this job by grace. How can I not speak in grace and commend grace to people? Freely I have received, now I will freely give. And right at the heart of that, freely giving is a message called the gospel. And the gospel is the word that there's forgiveness, there's eternal life, there's reconciliation with the Father, there's hope that death will be overcome and hell will be escaped, all as a gift. We need to say that to ourselves again and again. We did not earn our salvation. We didn't buy it. We didn't purchase it. Jesus purchased it. We took it as a gift by faith. So that all of my words now, all of my words to my colleagues and my neighbor must have that flavor about them. I have a gift to give. I have a gift here. I have something free. I don't mainly have a lifestyle to demand. I have a gift to give. The whole life thing. I mean, you're talking about he's smoking, he's drinking, he's going out with women and all these things. And you say, oh, this good night. How am I going to get him to stop this and stop this and stop this? That's just not your business. Not your business. That's Jesus' business. Your business is to offer a gift of forgiveness and power. And if God comes and blesses it, they'll take the gift. And the gift will be so precious that it will satisfy their souls. And if you're reading Future Grace, that satisfaction breaks the power of sin. One at a time, they will go down. Whatever sins are offensive to the Lord, over time, they're going to go. You don't need to worry about that. Don't let that stop you. Say, oh, these people are so bad. They tell such horrible stories about the weekend escapades. Don't worry about that. you got a gift. you got grace to give. Let God handle the transformation business. Let your words be in grace. I raised this question at that point. Does that mean that there's no place for tough words? Words of warning, words of judgment, warning of judgment. 
And uh, I don't think that's what that means because Jesus told the disciples, at least in one time of their ministry, when you go into a town and you spend some time there commending grace and they shut you down, wipe the dust off your feet and, and move on as a testimony against them. And Paul did that. We're reading Acts, you know, he goes into a synagogue and says, okay, all right, if you blaspheme the Messiah, I'll done. I'll go over here to the school next door and we'll do some evangelism with people who might be more receptive. And you warn them. You warn them. It's a gracious thing to warn people. So don't, don't think that graciousness always means softness or only saying the tender things about the gospel. The gospel is undergirded with some terrible uh, warrants of what will happen if you don't believe. Fourth point. First one was this morning. Number two and three so far tonight. Now, number four, seasoned with salt. I like this. I don't know if I understand it, but I like what I think I understand. I like salt. I'm a, I'm a salt nut. Give me peanuts, popcorn, pizza. Mmm. Make me thirsty. Anything to make me thirsty. And there, there was a clue. How do you create thirst in people? Give them salt. Dump salt on their food. Dump salt on your words, your life. And then, then what is that? That's the key. What is that? How do you live a life that's so salty, thirst is created in people? Hmm. I wonder what the answer to that question is. Well, I looked up all the places where salt is used, you know, looking for help. And let me just give you two of them. There aren't many. And show you why I think saltiness means radicalness for Jesus. Radical lifestyle stuff. Radical in your finances and radical in your risk taking and radical in the people you're willing to approach. It's radicalness is salt, I think. Let me show you why I think that. Um, Luke 14, you want to look at it with me? I'll read it. Luke 14:33. Jesus has said in the verses earlier, unless you uh, hate your mother and father and family, you can't be my disciple. Count the cost. And he tells these stories about you don't go out to war unless you count the cost to see if you can win. And you don't build a tower unless you count the cost to see if you can finish the tower. And then he comes to verse 33 of Luke 14. And he says, so therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Renounce all your possessions. Now, clearly, from a lot of other things he says, like Zacchaeus and others, that doesn't mean you don't live in your house anymore or drive your car anymore or pay the tuition that your school asked for. It, it means that you hold it so loosely it's not really yours and you can let go of it at any moment for the kingdom. That's what I mean by radical. Now, he goes on. Um, you can't be my disciple unless you renounce or give up all your possessions. Therefore, salt is good. Odd logic. I mean, that's really weird. Therefore, salt is good. So run that by me again, Jesus. <laughs> nobody, nobody can be my disciple unless they give up all their possessions. Therefore, salt is good. <laughs> okay. 
Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, which I take to mean if you're not like that, if you're so bound up with your possessions that you're just like everybody else in the world, you got no taste at all. You're no different. I mean, you can't put raw meat on raw meat and make it salty. You got to put salt on raw meat to make it salty. So you're just going to be the plain old blah raw meat that everybody else is. Flap, you got two pieces of raw meat. Tasteless. That's what he's saying here. You keep reading. Uh, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Whenever Jesus says that, you know you got a puzzle on your hand. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I say, I think I got ears, but I'm not sure. I'm doing my best, Jesus. You sure boggle my mind. But that's my best effort there to try to get at what salt is. Salt is being the kind of person described in verse 33. Namely, a person who sits so loose with his possessions that he leads a lifestyle and he has a kind of openness to the future and a kind of readiness to move and go wherever God says go and seek the kingdom first and let all those other things be added that people kind of look at him and and they kind of, what is that? That tastes different. And then they... They do what the last point in the text says. They ask questions. But I'm not there yet. I want you to see this again in Matthew 5, this salt thing. Look at Matthew 5. This is the most famous salt passage. Matthew 5:11. following. Maybe you've never thought about it in context when you said uh, you are the salt of the earth. We've always quote that verse just by itself, but you need to see what comes before and after, and you might get a help. Verse 11, blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Now, there's a a, a weird and radical way of life. You're being persecuted. You're being lied about and slandered. and And Jesus says, "Okay, here's the way to be my disciple. Rejoice. Luke even says, rejoice and leap for joy. Leap for joy. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now notice something here because this is going to lead us right into the last point. Your joy is rooted in your reward, which is coming. You hope. Keep that in your head for about two more minutes. Your joy is rooted in your hope that's coming. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Now, why is it, what's the connection there? My belief is that the connection is if you're this kind of person who, when you are persecuted, are so filled with satisfaction in God, who is your hope. That you can actually rejoice and thus be free to keep on loving. You really taste different in this world. You really taste different. Because everybody else in this world, when they are attacked, they attack back. You wrong me, I'm going to wrong you. You say anything mean about me, I'm going to say something mean about you. You pout at me, I'm going to pout back at you. Tit for tat. That is the way we live in the world. If you find somebody who when they're hit... They rejoice and return good for evil. 
What is that? Mmm, that is really good. Mmm. Of course, it might be offensive at first, but you find somebody like that in your life, and you kind of say, I haven't tasted anything like that for a long time. That makes me thirsty. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Let your speech be seasoned with salt or let your life be seasoned with salt means be a radical person. Be so free from possessions and free from the need to be vengeful because you've got your reward in heaven and your God who promises to be all that you need in Jesus. You can live a radical lifestyle around people. Now, that that brings us to the last point, number five, which is so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Respond to each person. Respond. Answer. So Paul's assuming they're saying something. What are they saying? What did there's this text? Almost exactly the same in 1 Peter 3.15, right? We know that verse. I'll read it to you. It says, uh, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the what that is in you? Hope. All right. Now let's put it together. Be ready to give a reason when people ask you about your hope. Now tell me. Why do people ask you about your hope? Because of what they've seen. You've got this hope in heaven that's allowing you to rejoice in persecution and be free from things. And they're trying to figure out now, in in their head, the wheels are spinning. Mm, I don't uh, go to Guinea or I don't give 10, 15, 20% of my income away. I don't. Uh, take time on my evenings or weekends to inconvenience myself. Blah, blah, blah. They may just go through the list of things they know that you might do. And they say, why, why would they take a hit like that on their finances? Why would they take a hit like that on their evenings when everybody else is kicked back and resting? Why, why, why do these people um, have these resources? Where do they get these resources? I get my resources from the happiness that I think will come by accumulating things and, and time and ease and securities. And so they must be expecting something else. And so they, I mean, they may not articulate it like that, but that's the kind of dynamic that Peter and Paul seem to think is going to happen here. And so when they ask you, the answer is already at hand. Because the answer is the cause of the hope. See, what's the reason for the hope that is in you? You don't have to say, oh, yes, that's right. I, I go back to theology 101. I'm supposed to have reasons for my hope. Huh, you don't have hope. You don't have hope if you got to do that, right? Hope is rooted in reality that you know. That's why you feel hope in a moment. You've got a reward. You've got a God. You've got a Christ. You've got a cross. You've got forgiveness. You've got resurrection. And you just start saying, well... Uh, I'm a Christian, and a Christian means to have been loved by God, to have recognized it, to have trusted in it, and to know that my sins are forgiven because Christ died for me. My death problem is solved. I don't even have to be afraid of death because Christ rose and said he's, he's going to take me with him when I die to heaven and then raise my body from the dead someday. And I have a tremendous future in front of me because I'm going to live forever with the king of kings. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where the lion lies down with the lamb. 
I can go on. Whatever comes to your mind about the good news that you have given you hope and you've bought the moment. Bought it. So let me just sum up here and then we'll pray and and, uh, do some commissioning for some radical people. Number one from this morning, pray. Let's pray. Let's be a praying church. Easy to talk, right? We're all friends here. Nobody's shooting at me. Nobody's making fun of me tonight. You're a nice, responsive audience. I get a lot of affirmation. Piece of cake, right? So we're talking about tomorrow. (laughs) I got a neighbor. And the more I think about him, the more he lives there. He lives in Dean's old house. And uh, the more I love him. And I want him to be a believer. He's not a believer. We found that out right away. First conversation. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking for the Cairo. I'm looking for the opportunity. And let me just tell you a couple that have come and, and how it hasn't produced much yet. So you pray with me and we'll pray with each other. Um, uh, first one I blew, I think, because of my first contact, uh, I, I drew him out and he said he was uh, ex-Lutheran and and, and I said, well, I'm, I'm a Baptist pastor. That's my church across the... I think that was a big mistake. <laughs> I, I, I probably should not have taken that step, put that forward. Pastor, Baptist, <laughs> it's all over here. There's no chance for a relationship here at all. And uh, so I think I've been trying to overcome that one ever since. Um, one example of a moment was when I, I got this funny pain. I went to the doctor I was worried about. And he said, you got a hernia. And so it's nothing serious. And uh, so I, I was going to play basketball the next morning. And so uh, we were driving home, my neighbor and I, in, alone for three minutes in the truck. And I said, uh, you know, yesterday I went to the doctor and I was kind of worried this might be serious. I know what this was here. And... Uh, when I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, I could die. This might be cancer. And I thought about you. And I, I just thought, I'd like to take you with me to heaven if I die. Could we talk sometime about that kind of thing? He said, sure. Like lunch? <laughs> and and he, he broke it off every time. The last time I tried was, uh, was on last... Friday, day before yesterday, and uh, I bought his car. And when I was in his house, filling out the title and writing the check, I said again, I just felt so led to do this. I said, you know, when I build, when I have a relationship with somebody like this, I feel very inauthentic if I don't bring what's really important to me into the relationship. And I would love to just take some time and tell you what God has shown me of himself. Can we do that sometime? Sure. <laughs> Lunch? And uh, he said, okay. And then he broke it off. He's so scared of me, I think. He just, he just doesn't want... So I'm just praying. I'm, I'm back off now. I've asked twice... Up front, can we talk about the gospel? Can we talk about spiritual things? And he said, sometime. And then when I've tried to actually follow through on it, he said, got an appointment or not this time, take a rain check. And that's what we're going to get. But God's going to do something. God's going to do something. 
I thought he did it. There was one other Kairos. Uh, he's in the hospital. I saw his wife drive out of the hospital. I said, she's supposed to be at work. I waved her down. I said, well, you're supposed to be at work. Nine o'clock in the morning. And she said, I just put my husband in the ambulance. I said, what? What's wrong? I said, I'm not sure. He had a terrible fever. I'm going over to St. Joseph's. I said, okay. So I jumped in the car and, and, and ran over to St. Joseph's. And, uh, and go in. He's in the emergency room there. You know, tube to get some antibiotics. They kept him overnight. He was fine. Just something. I said, I said, and I prayed with him. And there was another moment. So, uh, you're looking at a, a pastor in process is trying to learn how to be wise, how to speak words with salt and not drive people away and yet not be so paralyzed by the fear of driving people away that you don't say anything. And you know what I believe? I believe if just this number, what we got here, about two, three hundred people, if just this, this third or quarter of our church were to just say, let's just keep stumbling forward together in this. Let's just keep doing that sort of stuff. Day in and day out and pray. I think God would come down and bless those things. And we would see 2000 by 2000 become a reality. I'm praying that in 1996, by the end of this year, we will have averaged one convert per day. The Lord added unto the church daily as many as are being saved.